please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So we will continue this morning our expositions in this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. And I will be reading, starting in verse 6, down to verse 13. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Paul says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. King James has perfect. Uh, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in the mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man, except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's once again seek the face of God for his blessing upon us as we hear his word proclaimed. Our Father and our God, we are very thankful that we can hear the word of God. Thank you for the liberties that we enjoy in this land where no one prevents us from meeting and no one threatens us with harm for being Christians. We pray that you would preserve our liberties and grant that we may be able first to understand the word of God and secondly to accurately declare the word of God. Give us ears to hear then. Give us help, Lord. Give your servant help in declaring faithfully what you have put in your holy word for our glory, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. You can usually tell when people value something that they possess. There are many telltale signs. One of them is the very way they, it, they de declare how they have gotten this uh, precious thing, whatever it is. 
uh, it may be, uh, they say, well, my relative traveled to this far country and there was a special teacup they bought and brought it back and gave it to me and it's a treasure. It's a very valuable thing to us. And I tell you about the way that I got it. Uh, there might be a, a, a camera and you might, you might ask someone, you're trying to tell them how important and special this is. Do you know how I got that? Uh, well, in our passage, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He is recounting how the wisdom of God, embodied now in Scripture, became our possession. How did it become the possession of the Apostle Paul? And how did it come to us? To Paul, this is not a whole hum recitation of how God dealt with him. It wasn't boring to him, nor should it be in our eyes. This should be of the greatest interest to us. We will only perceive the treasure that we have in our Bibles to the extent that we understand how God gave it to us. Perhaps one of the reasons why you think about it People don't treasure the Bible. I've heard many preachers say, well, when's the last time you, you picked up the book? Uh, has it been sitting in your shelf and collecting dust? Uh, maybe one of the reasons why we don't read it as we ought to is because we don't appreciate the treasure that we have. We've had it for a long time. Perhaps, as it is in our country, inexpensive to get a good Bible. You can get a nice leather Bible with center column references and uh, various features, and it won't it won't cost you an arm and a leg. Perhaps that's one reason why we don't value the Word of God the way we ought to. We, it's inexpensive. It's easy to get. We've had it for a long time. None of these things change the value of the Bible. We need to appreciate how God gave it to us, and what a value and treasure that it is to us. And this is one of the things that Paul is trying to do as he speaks to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were enamored with this world's wisdom. They listened. They didn't have TV, and they didn't have an internet, but they had public speaking, and they could listen to philosophers. They could listen to the big wigs, the movers and the shakers, as we like to call them, and they could hear the world's wisdom. And it was because of their appetite for the world that their appetite for the word of God had greatly diminished. Solomon said, a sated man loads honey. Right? Uh, I had the experience this week because my my daughter, our daughter, had made us some uh, some chicken, and I had eaten too much for lunch. Though the chicken was very good, I was not very hungry. A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. And so Paul seeks to evoke from the Corinthian Christians this value and appetite for the Word of God. Uh, and he has been showing the difference between the, this world's wisdom 
and God's wisdom. And that's what verses 6 through 9 are especially intended to highlight. And now he continues in this theme by saying that this wisdom comes to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we are, we are considering this morning, the role of the Holy Spirit. My title was How God's, God Reveals Inspired Truth. And the answer is by the ministry of His Holy Spirit. And so we'll look at verses 10 and following and see how Paul opens that up to us. In verse 10, Paul says, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Now, one of the things that is very important in understanding this passage is how Paul uses the first person plural. He uses the word us. And throughout this section, all the way back from verse 6, Paul uses the first person plural. You know, the, the Bible is given to us in grammatical form. And our ability to really grasp what is important for us includes looking at the grammar of inspired apostles. We'll get to this, God willing, next week. This is what Paul says. The Holy Spirit teaches them exactly how to write. When Paul uses the first person plural all the way back in verse 9, he says, um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. This is that first person plural, we. And he continues to use it, verse 7, we speak God's wisdom, which God predestined for our glory. Okay, so he speaks of these people who have received from God the precious gift of inspired truth. And what I want to underscore is what Paul means by the word we. He does not refer, I'm going to say, and it might be surprising to you, he does not refer to Christians in general. We are the ultimate recipients of the word of God. We Christians, ordinary Christians, with no gift of inspiration. We are the recipients of the Word of God. But that's not what Paul's talking about at this point. Not yet. Many people, many commentators have thought that Paul does mean the ordinary Christians. But let me point out why I say that at, at, Paul is not really talking about us as recipients at this point. The problem is, the most obvious reason, is the interpretation that it yields. Because if we take the we in this section and follow it through, we end up saying in verse 13 that ordinary Christians are divinely inspired you see how he puts that, which things we speak, the things revealed by the Spirit of God. And yes, we ordinary Christians receive things which are taught by the Spirit of God, but that's not what he's talking about. Which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. So, 
Is Paul really saying that Christians only speak inspired words? If you take the first person plural and say us and we refers to all Christians, then you end up at the end in verse 13 saying that all Christians are divinely inspired. And I know you brethren well enough, you don't believe that. You don't, you don't, you don't believe that kind of idea. But that kind of idea is floated in our culture today. That is floated in many churches that all Christians have the spirit in equal measure. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not talking about the we who are the ordinary Christians as, and, and certainly not the Corinthian Christians because, again, they were in love with worldly wisdom, not divine wisdom. And that's Paul's point. This means that the whole passage here refers to the apostles. When he says, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit, he is talking about the divinely inspired apostolic writers. Now, there are principles which apply to all Christians within the passage, as we'll see. But this is especially talking about apostles. So, these are the direct recipients of this precious gift in verse 10. The recipients are the apostles. Secondly, Let's look at the fact and agency of revealed wisdom. The fact and agency in revealed wisdom. For to us, God revealed them these precious gifts of divine revelation, inspired wisdom for God. How did he, how did he communicate it? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. He had already implied, Paul had, that this wisdom was revealed when he declared that it was not man's wisdom, but God's. Paul is telling us that God's wisdom is not the product of men's natural intellectual gifts. It's God's wisdom, which Paul emphasizes in the, in the plainest words he emphasizes, he begins, in, of course, in, uh, in verse 10 with uh, the word, but, the word of contrast. These things are not understood by the world, not even the greatest worldly minds, yet God has seen fit to reveal them through, to and through the apostles, the apostles. And the agency by which he has seen fit to do so has been by his own Holy Spirit. Dear brethren, I cannot emphasize enough to you how important this truth is. We pray this way, don't we? This is the way we ought to pray. We say, God, use your Holy Spirit to explain the Word of God to our understanding. Because unless... We have the help of your Holy Spirit. We will not be able to understand, to believe, to apply the Word of God. Generally speaking, all the benefits that actually reach men from God are conveyed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit conveys common grace to men. The Holy Spirit restrains evil in men. The Holy Spirit provokes grace 
in men, gracious deeds in men. Common grace is the work of God's Holy Spirit. Restraining men from sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. God says in the book of Genesis, before the flood, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Before the flood, while men were degrading themselves more and more into sin, the Holy Spirit was restraining. And we are told that the Holy Spirit still restrains sin in our culture. You might not think so. You might think our culture is very bad. It is very bad. We rightly pray that God would revive us and change us. But actually, God is restraining sin, or it would be much worse than it is. The work of conviction of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember in when uh, Jesus was instructing the disciples, he said the Holy Spirit is the one who will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit does this work. And the first fundamental blessing of salvation, regeneration. That's where salvation begins, when God reaches in and changes the heart of man. When he takes out the heart of stone, and gives the heart of flesh. This is the work of the Spirit of God. And that the blessings that flow from that work, the blessing of adoption, whereby we are given, the Spirit of adoption is given by the Holy Spirit. All illumination, all illumination in which the truth of God is made known to believers is the work of the Holy Spirit. So when I say that Paul means by the we, only apostles, I don't mean to infer that the rest of us don't have the work of the Holy Spirit. No, he, he, he produces many fruits in us so that the Apostle John could write in his first letter, you have the, the anointing. Speaking of the Christians in general, you have the anointing from the Holy One and you all know. So it is no surprise that the Holy Spirit is the agent used to reveal wisdom to the apostles, wisdom needed by us. Now Paul is approaching this matter by explaining it from a certain point of view. How does the Holy Spirit do this work? And that's my third point this morning. The appropriate reason God uses this agency. Why does God reveal his wisdom by the Holy Spirit to the apostles? And then, of course, to us. Well, that's the appropriate reason declared in the middle of verse 10 and verse 11. Notice what Paul says. I'll begin at the beginning of verse 10. For this for to us, apostles, God revealed them through the Spirit. Why that means, Paul. Paul uses a connected, logical connection for. I'm going to give you the reason why he does it. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. He tells us that the Holy Spirit alone is able 
to convey the mind of God. The only one who can convey the mind of God, the only way we are able to understand what God's mind is, is by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul has, Paul has it in two parts. First, he says that the Spirit searches. That word searches is uh, a, a very uh, determined word. Uh, it's not a casual kind of a word. It's, a, it's not like us. When I was a kid, and I lost a book, which happened many times, my mom would say, go look for your history textbook. Go look for your book that you lost. And I, I didn't try very hard. I opened the door of my bedroom. My eyes swept across the room. I closed the door and I said, I didn't find it, Mom. I, I, I can't find it. Well, that's not the kind of finding. That's not the kind of looking that the Apostle Paul is talking about. It's a thorough, painstaking search. And what we are told by the Apostle Paul is that the Spirit searches. That, that word. He searches. It's an intense activity. Paul uses that word in 1 Peter 1, 11. I'm not going to turn you there, but uh, there Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter talks about the, uh, the Old Testament prophets. They had a prophecy. They spoke to it, but there were things about it that they didn't understand. So they made, Peter says, careful search and inquiry seeking to understand what kind of person or time the Holy Spirit was testifying within them. So they didn't get it all. They didn't understand it all. But they sought to prayerfully understand the prophecies which they themselves gave. The Pharisees also searched the scriptures in this careful way. Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures. I don't know if you've ever seen a Jewish man holding his Old Testament scriptures, reading through. Count, they, they even count the number of words and letters in the scriptures. They search the scriptures, Jesus said, because you think that to find eternal life. And if you're going to look for eternal life, you, you want to be sure that you're leaving no stone unturned. Jesus uses that to describe the way the Jews search the scriptures. The Apostle Paul here tells us that the Holy Spirit of God searches in this way. He says he searches all things. The Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Paul wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit has access to the deepest thoughts of God. He helps us with this searching ministry when we pray and we don't know how to pray as we ought. Romans 8, 27, the Holy Spirit searches us and he knows what God's mind is and he knows what our thoughts are and our desires and he helps us to pray. But here, 
the Apostle Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit searches even the depths of God. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 11. Because I think we have in Romans chapter 11 a real help in understanding what the Apostle Paul is saying. Why does God use the Holy Spirit to convey inspired wisdom to the apostles, which then we benefit from? Well, in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is coming to his conclusion of God's dealings with nations in the work of salvation. He's talking about how God deals with the Jewish people, how some are saved, and some are hardened. Some are given spiritual life and light, and some are hardened. And he talks about the way the gospel comes to men, and how God uses various emotional influences to prepare men to receive God's salvation or not to receive it. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. And when Paul is all done, this is what he says in verse 33, Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depths. That word depths is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. Oh, the depths. The Spirit searches the depths of God. Oh, the depths. Both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul has been writing in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about God's way with nations, a salvation that affects broad, vast numbers of people. And he says, when you, when you, when you think about this, you're looking into the depths of God. And he says, how un searchable and that's the same word back in first Corinthians chapter 2 the the uh, he searches the Holy Spirit searches the depths of God so in Romans 11:33 the Apostle Paul is worshiping God for the gospel which the Holy Spirit has revealed though the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You can try and try and try with your own little pea brain to understand the ways of God, but they are mysterious beyond the ability of human beings. It's, it's, it's reflected in one of the words. I woke up this morning, this text has been on my mind, and I remembered a hymn probably didn't, I told my wife, I probably never really appreciated this hymn the way I should have. It says, I know not how the Spirit knows convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. It's very true. What do people sit under the sound of the gospel and their hearts are hardened. They push it, push it off lightly for various reasons. 
and their hearts are hardened. Other people, you might say some preacher who doesn't really know the ABCs of good preaching just speaks the plainest words. That was what happened in the conversion of Spurgeon. He went to a church on a snowy day and the minister couldn't be there so some nobody stood up and told him, look to him and live. Took that text out of Isaiah, look and live. And Spurgeon was converted there. Why there? Why then? The answer is the work of the Spirit of God. And this is what Paul is trying to help us to understand. You might think that the depths of God, the wonderful things of God, is the unfolding of the DNA molecule in the cell when it divides. Really amazing stuff. Well, how does God hang the moon in the sky so that it revolves around the earth, receding slowly away from the earth at a very small distance each year? How does God do it? How does God keep the solar system running perfectly? How does God do that? Well, that's that's the depths of his wisdom. But salvation actually is a far greater mystery, a far greater thing, mighty work of God by the Holy Spirit. So this is the reason why you'll get scientists who understand the inner workings of the cell. And now they have they have uh, animations of what's going on in the cell that are wonderful, amazing to see. That's nothing compared to the work of the Spirit of God in the souls of men. And so the Apostle Paul says, this is the reason the depths, the very deepest things of God's mind and activity are the things which the Spirit of God is able. Men can't search them. Even inspired apostles can't search them so as to exhaust them. But God's Holy Spirit can and does. He speaks of the depths. The depths which God does in the salvation of men. The very wisest things God thinks about the natural world, but also about the salvation of souls, is what the Holy Spirit knows. And then the second reason, Paul, Paul says, the first reason is this, that uh, the Holy Spirit is able to, to plumb the depths of God's wisdom the way human beings cannot. But the second thing is, Paul shows how appropriate it is by pointing to a commonly understood fact. A commonly understood fact in verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Well, here's a commonly understood fact of human experience. Maybe you've had the experience that I've had with my wife. We've been living together for over 50 years and uh, we know how each other thinks. 
So my wife might be talking about something, and I say, well, I know what you think, honey. I know, I know what you think, and then I try to tell her what I think. Uh, she's thinking, and she says, oh, no, you got it all wrong. This is what I was thinking. It's, it's rather humbling and embarrassing when it happens to us. We think we know what someone's thinking and what they're about to say, and then they tell us, oh, no, you got it all wrong. That's a common experience. Because in order for us to know what's in the mind of one another, we have to have a revelation, if I can put it that way. The other person has to tell us what they're actually thinking, or else we might have a clever guess and be right, or we might be very wrong. You see, and that's what Paul says. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man who is in him? What you're thinking right now, if you're thinking about how God conveys wisdom, or if you're thinking about the uh, repair on the car that needs to be done tomorrow, you see, only you know, you and God. But we can't figure out what you're thinking unless you tell us. That's what Paul says. And the same thing he says is true of God as a sovereign God. The thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Paul tells us that that is why God has decided that he is going to use the Holy Spirit to reveal the truths of his own wisdom. One of the problems that we have is that we're missing the very ability to understand God's thoughts by natural reasoning. When I think about my wife and I, we have common experience, we have a common nature, so it wouldn't be surprised if I could guess what she is thinking. But the problem is, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and His ways are not our ways. So how can we expect that we will be able to figure out the way God thinks and the way God acts when he is of a totally different order of being than we are? That's why the Holy Spirit is the appropriate agent for revealing the wisdom of God. If men are to know God's wisdom, it is only by revelation by God's own Spirit the Spirit searches the deep things of God, all the things, and He knows the things of God. And so it is only by God revealing through His Holy Spirit that we can know the mind of God. And the process is described this way because... Revelation is a process. Revelation is a process whereby over time, God reveals to men the truths that they are to reveal to us. So he searches all things. He searches the hearts and minds of those who hear the things revealed. That's, that's why we have to pray the way we do. That's why we have to pray. You, know, you, you may pray for me, and I'm glad that you do. I love to hear it when you say, 
we need your Holy Spirit, we need your grace, so that the preacher can say to us what we are to understand in a way we can understand it. Well, that's why we need the Holy Spirit. As clever as a preacher may be, as plain as he may think that he is making the truths that he is teaching you, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. He searches the mind of God. He searches the mind of the preacher. He searches the mind of the hearer. Why is it that it happens sometimes when a preacher is preaching to you and begins to describe the workings of sin in the soul, that it sounds to you like somehow God has put some kind of an internal monitor in your soul and let the preacher hear the way your soul works so that your sins are declared in the plainest of language. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is one engaged in the preacher, in the people, and with the mind of God. He searches all things. And he has an infinite understanding of all things. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that this is why God uses the Holy Spirit to reveal divine wisdom. But then, in verse 12, Paul talks about the mercy, the distinct mercy of the way God reveals his truth. Notice verse 12. Now we have received the apostles, not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things which are freely given to us by God. Paul says it's the Spirit which has been given to these men, the organs of revelation, the apostles and prophets. This has been given as a free and gracious gift. Paul calls it, how does he call it in that verse? The things freely given to us by God. Your teacher, if you are still in school, and even many times in the corporate world, you're in school because you have all these things that the corporate world is trying to teach you. Many of them are not good. When you have a teacher, the teacher has to show kindness in communicating the truth. The teacher knows so much more than you know. The teacher, if, if you're learning algebra, for example, one of the hard subjects when you go up through the grade grades and you have X and Y and A, B, C, uh, that's hard stuff. The T, if the teacher wants to confuse you, it's an easy thing to do. If the teacher speaks in a way that you can clearly understand it is a gracious gift. You ought to thank God for teachers who can tell you what you need to know in a way that suits your needs. And this is what God does by the Holy Spirit. It is an act of grace. When we receive God's wisdom through the teaching of the apostles, these are the things freely given to us by God. It's not because we deserve them. It's not because we're very smart. It's not because we're very godly. It is a gift of God's free grace. If you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you know it enough to realize that you're a sinner, 
and that you would go to hell apart from the grace of God. And you know that you should repent of your sins, confess them to God, plead for mercy and grace. And you know to, how to believe in Jesus Christ, how to appropriate his grace, how to lean upon him, how to rest your soul upon his saving merits. This is a gracious gift of God. You must never think that you deserved it, that you earned it, or God did it because of your merits. No, it is a gift of God's free grace. God is imparted in spirit. It's freely given. Now the last thing that I want to point out in our text, and we won't have time to say much about it right now, is the um, actual outworkings of this in the apostles' ministry. What all Paul has done right now is he said, look, you don't get God's wisdom from the world. You get it from the apostles. Why do you get it from the apostles? It's because the gift and ministry of the Holy Spirit has been given to them and is operative in their ministry. That's why. But now what he's going to do, starting in verse 13, is tell us how this works in the apostolic ministry. And I'll just read it for the moment. Listen. Which things we speak. How do you get it, Paul? How do you know what things you should speak? He says it's the ministry of the Spirit of God. And we speak these things. Not in words taught by human wisdom. See, it's not man's wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the rulers and the big wigs and the big shots of the world. And really... It's not even the it's not even the wisdom of the apostles. It doesn't originate with them. But we speak we speak this wisdom not in those not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, concerning combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So he says the reason we're able to convey divine wisdom is because God teaches us what to speak. God teaches his apostles what to speak, and thus they convey them to us. Well, we're going to go into that in more detail, God willing, next week. How God actually works this out in the apostolic ministries. But we don't have time for it this morning. So what do we take home from these things this morning? What's the application to us? How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, the first thing that we ought to appreciate about this teaching of the Apostle Paul is that it gives us compelling proofs that the Spirit of God is both personal and divine. The Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is God. One of the more difficult things in theology is to understand the Trinitarian relationships because the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but there are not three gods. There's only one God in three persons. And that's something entirely outside of our experience. But this verse teaches us that the Holy Spirit is God, and not just a force, I know. I know what the JWs say. I know what the other heretics say. 
that the Holy Spirit is just a force. And there are those who say that the Holy Spirit is just God wearing a different hat. But that's heresy. That's damning heresy. Soul-destroying heresy. The Holy Spirit is a person. And the Holy Spirit is divine. We don't see him operating here merely as a force. Here we are told that, there, that he is an intelligent being searching diligently. He searches God. He searches the depths of God. He searches the hearts of men. He, said he searches even the hearts of the unconverted and he knows them. He comprehends all things. So, number one, he's, still, he's a person because he searches. It's not the only thing he does, but it's enough to teach us that he is a personal being. And we see his divinity because he comprehends all things. He knows everything in the mind of God. But you know, only God knows everything. You might meet someone who is graduated from some, with some advanced degrees, and you'd say, well, he knows everything. He knows all about astronomy. He knows all about genetics. He knows all about biology. He knows all about physics. He knows everything. No, only God knows everything. And the Holy Spirit knows everything, and he knows God. And it takes deity to understand deity. Only God understands God. The Holy Spirit is divine, and he is personal. The Holy Spirit stands in relation to God that our minds do to ourselves. That's what Paul is saying, right? The Holy Spirit is to God's mind what our spirit is to our minds. Well, Matthew Henry puts it this way. The Holy Spirit is as much God as a man's mind is to himself. So the Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit has to be. So, never worry. I know we're talking about mysteries here. We're talking about the depths of God here. Never worry about someone who comes along and tries to confuse you and says, well, you know, it's really illogical to conceive of God as a trinity. It's really illogical to receive, to think about the Holy Spirit as God. It's, it's hard. It's illogical. Don't worry about it. This is what God, from his own holy words, says about himself. We sang this morning a hymn. You know what we were doing? We were worshiping the Holy Spirit. And it's absolutely right and absolutely fitting that we should praise God, the Holy Spirit, for the things that he does. Because he does for us things that no one else can do. So let me, so that's the one thing I want you to take home with you. Remember, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit is divine. Second thing by way of application, and you should, you should never shy away from it. Second thing is the nature of true religion. The nature of true religion. 
True religion is not a human philosophy. It is not a process of spiritual evolution. What you'll hear from the thinkers today in the sciences is that the, there has been a, a spiritual evolution. Man started in a cave with grunts and groans and he evolved his way up the intellectual ladder to where now he doesn't need God anymore. It's just a process of philosophy, a natural process. Hogwash. Nonsense. Don't buy it. It's not true. True religion in all the ages is the product of divine intervention in our sinful, spiritually ignorant world. True religion has been revealed by God's spokesman. It's not human notions. The world will say, well, we just work our way to heaven. We have to be free to sin if forgiveness is real. We can, we can save ourselves by choosing God. Oh, that's a natural religion, a nonsense religion. What we have is a supernatural religion announced by God himself. We have a supernatural religion, a crucified Christ, an unmerited pardon, and an eternal heaven or an eternal hell. So what we have is not the religion of the world. Watch out. Watch out when you start thinking in natural terms about the meaning of life and the salvation of your soul the way the world thinks of them. You can't have God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. They are incompatible. You need to rest your heart and mind on God's wisdom only. The last thing I want to say before we're done, one of the things this text does is it reproves spiritual pride and prayerlessness in approaching the Word of God. This text reproves spiritual pride and prayerlessness in approaching the Word of God. One of the things I really have appreciated about being here at City View for a long time now is the devotion to prayer before the worship of God. And I see it in your leaders. I see it in Pastor Tate. I see it in your deacons. I see it in the people of God here. And it is right and beautiful, not only in my side, my eyes, but in the eyes of God. Many of you arrive here very early and you know, with the New York City public transportation system as probably a necessity. However, many of you sit here praying, reading the scriptures, asking for God, the Holy Spirit to come and teach us. That's the way it needs to be, brethren. We need to have the spiritual humility that prays earnestly for God to open our eyes to teach us the things of God. When we don't pray, it would be right for God to judge us by giving us leanness in our souls. If you've ever felt it, 
as a Christian, it's a horrifying experience. When you feel as though you are so distant from God, you get no sweetness from the Word of God. You get no uh, edification from the Word of God. Now, that could be the preacher's fault. That's true. But if you have the Spirit of God ministering to you, God can make up for the preacher's inadequacies. God can. And God oftentimes does. But here, my point is this. We need to be men and women, boys and girls of prayer. Not just, again, I've emphasized in our corporate life and worship together, true. But in our family life, we need to pray for our children and our grandchildren and acknowledge before God as much as we wish that grace ran in bloodlines, our children won't be saved simply because they're our children. That's not how it works. God doesn't guarantee you that your children are going to be saved because they're your children. I, I pray this way. I do. Honestly. I pray for certain people who have children and I think about them and I say, Lord, make their hearts glad by saving their children. Save the children, forgive their sins, reveal Christ to them, make their parents' hearts glad. See, I told you that's the wrong thing to pray. But again, grace doesn't run in bloodlines. That's why we had to pray for them. We need to pray for sovereign grace. And if you are an unconverted person here, although your prayers don't have any merit, it's right and good for you to pray, Oh Lord, I'm a sinful man and woman, boy or girl. I don't have grace. I can't make grace. You might as well try making grace as making gold out of air. You can't. You can't save yourself. But God has given you the ability to pray. It's an ability in which there's no merit. You don't get points with God for praying. But you will not be saved without prayer. You need prayer. And you may pray, Lord, my parents have told me, my friends have told me, the preachers told me, my Sunday school teacher has told me that I am lost in sin and I need a new heart. I need to be changed from the deepest recesses of my being. I need to be born again. Lord, I can't bear myself again. Children, you know, you don't, you don't make yourself born. You're born from without. You're born from another agency and you are born again by the spiritual agency of the Holy Spirit. And so I would urge you, you can, you can and you should pray, Lord, change my heart. Give me a new heart. I have a hard heart, Lord. I can sin. I can lie. I can be dishonest. I can be evil to my friends. I 
can't change myself. Remember the day when that dawned upon me when my mom spanked me for something bad I did and I told myself tomorrow it's going to be different. Tomorrow I'm going to change. I'm going to turn over a new leaf, whatever that meant. And the next day I was just as sinful, just as wicked as any other day. But we need, you need, to ask God for mercy. And God is the God, Jesus Christ, who has made atonement for the sins of all his believing people. And you may come to him. Because Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You need the work of the Holy Spirit in your soul. For which we pray for you. Let's pray. Our Father, this evening we have, this morning we have sat and listened to what you gave to the Apostle Paul to pass on to us, that you have given the Apostles, your servants, your divine wisdom, and you have taught them how to convey the wisdom of God. So we pray that you would help us to take Careful heed to what you have said. Help us not to find wisdom, not to seek wisdom, not to trust in wisdom from this world, which is under Satan's delusions. But we pray that you would take the word of God and give us real understanding by the ministry of your Holy Spirit so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Have mercy, Lord, upon our unconverted friends and relatives, who many times, Lord, are so opposed to their own good and don't seem to know their right hand from their left in spiritual things. We pray you would have mercy upon our children and our grandchildren, that you would work in their hearts. We will do our utmost to bring the gospel to them, Lord, but you are the one who must open their understanding by your Holy Spirit to the things of God. So please have mercy upon them and do your great work of salvation for which we will give you praise and thanks. Receive our thanks then and our worship and bless your word to our souls. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen.